Greetings, Dog Nation. I am Jamie Cheek. This is A View from the Couch, and it's Saturday in Athens. Welcome to our second episode previewing the 2023 college football season. It's Saturday in Athens. Uh, I hope you caught our emergency podcast in the middle of the week uh, talking about the ever-changing landscape of college football. The Arizona Board of Regents met for about 90 minutes on Thursday evening. Washington's Board of Regents had a late-called meeting and met until about 1.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time, so about 10.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time. Uh, no announcements have been made as of yet as to the outcomes of those meetings, but it is being widely reported that the situation has changed maybe just a little bit. Arizona looks pretty much a done deal to the Big 12. It is assumed at this point that Arizona State and Utah are also probably going to be going to the Big 12 starting in 2024. The, the change is that while the Big 10 expansion looks like it's happening, it looks like right now it only includes Oregon and Washington. So it'll be very interesting to see, maybe even by the time this comes out on Saturday, uh, if, if anything has changed with that. So uh, if you didn't catch that episode that dropped on Thursday, go back and take a listen. It it. It's a complicated episode because I really run through a lot of what has happened and how we got here, Uh, but I think it's extremely informative. I think a lot of college football fans are going to find themselves kind of tuning in over the next few weeks to get ready for the 2023 season. If you're not a sicko like me, you, you haven't been thinking about this stuff for weeks and months already. So as the season starts and you start hearing all these things that have happened, that episode will explain a little bit of why we are where we are and and maybe a little bit of a peek of the doomsday scenario of where we might be going. So, uh, again, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, Today, we get back to what the plan was, right? So today we are going to be talking about uh, the Georgia Bulldogs. We're going to talk about the new faces that are going to have an impact on the 2023 version of our dogs. And then in the second part of the show, appropriately, we are going to preview the Pac-12. So that'll be fun and interesting and what could end up being the last Pac-12 preview uh, that ever gets done on the show, as it seems, at least at this point, more than likely that the Pac-12, their days are numbered. So, you know, this preview or twenty twenty or the, uh, the the new faces pod, as I usually like to call it, it's usually one of the ones I like the most. I don't follow recruiting, but what I do follow pretty closely is spring practice and in, and and fall, you know, summer workouts and then the beginning of fall camp. And it's always very fun or it has been in the past, very fun to look and see okay, which freshman can we expect to come in and make a huge impact in the upcoming season. So, if if you've been following for a while even back to the days of the blog, I I don't take credit for Nick Chug but I told everybody about Nick Chubb before Nick Chubb was Nick Chubb. Um, And not that that was, you know, the only, I was the only person saying it, but that was a year where you had Marshall, you had Gurley, you had Sony Michelle coming in as a five-star. But when you saw pictures of Nick Chubb, it was like, Hey, don't sleep on this guy. So uh, I've always enjoyed this aspect of a season preview, but I have to admit it, it's changed dramatically and it's changed dramatically for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is the depth and the quality of Georgia's roster in the last few years has increased to the point to where we really don't have a situation where you need desperately need a freshman to step in and make an immediate impact. Now, there are a couple of exceptions that we've seen over the last few years. One exception was last year with Malachi Starks uh, as a, a true freshman coming in and being absolutely excellent uh, on defense. There is one person we'll talk about in the pod today where Georgia needs a freshman to step in. And, and from all reports, they're going to have a freshman step in and, and play a very critical role from the very beginning. But 
The second change, and probably the change that we're going to be impacted most by in 2023, is that transfer portal. Now, there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions when it comes to NIL and transfer portal and that kind of the state of of modern college football and is it good and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I can tell you that as a part of the Touchdown Club of Athens, I've heard Kirby Smart speak two or three times over the last couple of years and every single time he acknowledges that while a lot of people might not like nil might not like the portal they're here they're not going anywhere and you either learn to deal with it or you get left behind and so georgia um coming into the 2022 season uh it it was a little bit of a question mark i think across the country the fact that they didn't take anybody out of the transfer portal they lost jermaine burton to alabama they lost a couple of other players here and there but they took nobody in the transfer portal. Now, as the season progressed last year, uh, it it hit people that the reason why is because Kirby didn't feel like he had any holes, and last year's team went 15-0 and and won the national championship, so I guess he was right. Coming into this season, the transfer portal has been used, and it's been used in a very specific place. So we're going to start with the two guys that I think are most likely to make a very significant impact from day one, and that is uh, two wide receivers that were taken out of the portal. First, Dominic Lovick, Lovett, sorry. Uh, he's a junior who transferred from Missouri last year. He had 56 catches, 846 yards. That's 15 yards per carry average or per catch average uh, and three touchdowns. When asked about Lovett and the loss of Lovett um, at SEC media days, the uh, Missouri head coach, whose name has just went out of my head, so we're just going to keep rolling, um, the Missouri head coach said, we can't replace him. And uh, from a talent standpoint, not necessarily from a yard standpoint, but from a talent standpoint, Lovett was the best wide receiver uh, at Missouri last year. So Georgia went out in the conference and got somebody that they played last year, right, Uh, and, and brought them in to fill a very specific need on the offensive side of the ball. Now, Georgia doubled down at that position because they also went over to Mississippi State, yet another team that they played last year and got third-year player Ra-Ra Thomas out of Mississippi State. Last year, 44 catches, 626 yards, 14 yards per catch, seven touchdowns. Now, a little bit of an asterisk spot beside that. That is the Mike Leach offense. Um So he was obviously throwing the ball like crazy. Uh, But in two seasons with Mississippi State, Ra-Ra Thomas, 12 touchdowns. So these are two guys that as we see the season starting, and we we all have recognized, I've talked about on the first episode, the, the beginning part of this schedule is super, super soft. Now, what that's going to mean is anybody that's got any kind of injury in week one or week two is absolutely not going to play. There's no reason for it. Georgia could run Gunnar Stockton, who is the presumed third-string quarterback at this point, run Gunnar Stockton out there with whatever other 10 guys you can find standing around the sidelines, and they can win the first two games of this season without playing anybody important, okay? So everything's going to be leading up to week three when Georgia hosts South Carolina. So I don't want to tell you that the first game, the two two of the three starting wide receivers are going to be Dominic Lovett and Ron Ra Thomas. But I can tell you that these two guys, along with Lab McConkey, are going to lead Georgia from a receiver standpoint this year. These are the guys. They did not go out and get these guys to be depth pieces. They went out and got these guys to make huge impacts. And I think there will be a game this year where at least – the two of these guys are announced as the starters or listed as the starters. Now, we know that the way college football is now, you don't have starters that play every down or anything like that. But Lovett is a, from what I can have, have been able to pick up and see, he's a little bit more uh, of a, a possession guy, a third down guy, a guy going across the middle. Rod Ra Thomas is a home run guy. He is a catch it, make somebody miss, and take it to the house guy. So, both of those things are uh, obviously extremely critical uh, at different points in the game, but I think both of these guys are going to have huge impacts this year. Now, I, I could overload you with a lot of numbers. I could overload you with a lot of names. What I've decided to do is we're going to talk a little bit about some names, but I'm not going to sit here and give you everybody's height and weight as I've done in the past because, honest to goodness, that really doesn't matter. Um, 
the the team sheet came out yesterday with the the numbers of each of these players. I'm also not going to do that just because I don't feel like anybody's going to be listening to this and go, oh yeah, okay, I remember that guy's going to be number whatever. So I mentioned in the uh, a second ago that Georgia had one hole, and that hole is on the offensive line, and and in a lot of respects, it's the most important position on the offensive line, and unless something dramatic happens, all the reports coming out of spring practice. Fall practice has opened yesterday. Um, all the reports coming out of the early part of the summer workout period, the late part of the summer workout period, all the beat writers agree that Georgia's going to start a true freshman at left tackle in the SEC. His name is Ernest Green, and apparently uh, he is something special. So, you know, Georgia has Amarius Mims, who, if, if you remember, was a five-star guy, came in, um, you know, kind of got pushed down the depth chart a little bit after his freshman season in 2021. He put his name in the transfer portal, decided to stay, saw some increased snaps last year, and he's now projected to be the starter at right tackle. But the starter at left tackle could very well be a true freshman in Ernest Green. I don't know if anybody remembers, but we had a true freshman that started at left tackle a few years ago. His name is Andrew Thomas. And if you don't follow a lot of things in the NFL, he just signed a five-year extension with the New York Giants for $100 million. So um, he was pretty good. He was a first-round pick. I think he was fourth overall, if I remember correctly. Uh, And he's already been signed to an extension by the Giants. Uh, one of the best left tackles in all of football, Ernest Green, That that's a lot to live up to. I'm not saying he's going to be Andrew Thomas in a top five pick, but the last time Georgia started a true freshman at left tackle, it worked out pretty good for the dogs. And for Kirby and, you know, the the team, the offensive coaching staff, if they really feel like he's ready to do this, that means – He's ready to do this. Like, there's no reason to push him into that position unless he's ready because Georgia has a lot of depth along the offensive line. It's been four and five stars for a long time on the offensive line. So, you know, there's a lot of names that if you if you kind of even just watch on signing day, the names that come in, there's a lot of names you go, oh, wait, I remember that guy, you know. Um, so it, it's not like they're void of talent on the offensive line, so they're having to play a true freshman. Uh, but that's one name you're definitely going to want to, you know, keep an eye on and remember because it sounds like this guy's going to start at left tackle, which is in a lot of ways, just, just kind of crazy. All right, let's run through some other people that, uh, that you may hear about Joe, Joe, Joe Nell Aguero safety. No, he's not going to start there. Georgia's the defensive backs, the safety positions, the two safety positions may be one of the deepest parts of this team other than wide receiver. Um, but the, the the safety position is, is, is insanely deep right now. But this kid apparently is a thumper, and he is really turning some heads. So a couple of things to just kind of think about as a freshman in the safety position. One is, you know, double moves, assignments, man versus zone uh, reads and coverages, communication, all of that kind of stuff. The other thing that just jumps out to me in my head is targeting. Can they get him into a point where he can get those big hits? You know, thumper safeties like to get the big hits. They like to make the hits where the whole stadium, no matter whether you're on the road or at home, the whole stadium, ooh, ah, ooh, you can audibly hear it on TV, in person, whatever. The whole stadium just, ooh. But can he get his head to the side and lead with his shoulder the way that Georgia tries to train guys to do it? Or is he going to be so excited to be in a college football game with 90,000 people watching him, he's going to get kicked out of the game uh, getting called for targeting? So for me, any you know young safety, that that's a big thing. And so in practice and you know in the early part of the season, it'll be interesting to see because these guys that I'm going to talk about the rest of this time, these guys are going to get playing time. And those first two games, they are going to play. They may play more than the starters do just because uh, the quality of the opponent's just not there. So Aguero is somebody on the defensive side that we need to keep a lookout for. All right, let's just run through the rest of these a little bit quicker. Roderick Robinson, the second, he's going to, he's a running back out of California. Big guy, six foot, 235. I told you I wasn't going to give you a lot of stats, and I'm not, but this guy is a big dude. Um He's a bowling ball. He's a Nick Chubb type. He and Branson Robinson, very similar in the way that that they run. 
they're not afraid of contact. They're they they have speed, but speed is not necessarily uh, their game. It's a lot of just power. Robinson's a true freshman because Branson Robinson is coming into uh, fall camp with a little bit of an injury. You could see him as kind of the fourth back uh, for for Georgia right now. Depth chart wise, it kind of looks obviously uh, Kendall Milton and Dejon Edwards are the top two guys, and then another guy that we're going to talk about here is um, Andrew Paul. Now he is not a true freshman; he's a redshirt freshman. He tore his ACL in uh, spring practice last year, but he is a guy who, coming off that ACL, apparently no restrictions on the first day of fall camp. He was out there full practice, no. No uh, red jersey, no uh, brace on the knee. So uh, 12 months removed from that injury, he was a guy that was kind of a miss, uh, make-you-miss guy, kind of a Kendall Milton type, I guess, uh, would be a, a good comparison. Maybe not as, as good as James Cook, but that kind of player, a catch the ball out of the backfield and make some guys miss, a speed guy. Robinson's different, but those, those backs uh, – three very young backs that we have behind Milton and Edwards, who are the two guys that are going to be, they're both seniors. It's their last year. And then you kind of have a drop off as far as experience goes to these younger guys, Robin, uh, Roderick Robinson um, and Andrew Paul. So a couple of running backs to keep an eye out on. I, it it seems weird. I, I, I don't even know how much I believe what I'm hearing, but, Everything I'm hearing is that the two freshman tight ends that Georgia has brought in are so good that they are going to see the field. Now, when Georgia already has Brock Bowers, uh, the best tight end in the country, and they have they have a guy in Oscar Delp, who as a true freshman last year behind Washington and um Bowers made a, a big impact. It, it's hard to see that these guys could really make that much of an impact. But the two guys we brought in this year, Lawson Lucky, he's a Norcross kid. And then from across the country, or sorry, from Florida, my bad, uh, Pierce Sperling. Now, Sperling is 6'6 and 240. So he's not quite Darnell Washington size. Okay. Washington was 6'8. But 6'6, six, 6'8, six, six, I mean, we're, we're talking about a similar body type there. So it could be that if Sperling can progress through the season and again these guys are going to get a lot of time early in the season it it's not impossible that by the end of the season he could be at least a factor in the run game he's not going to be darnell washington nobody is ever going to be darnell washington that guy was such a freak um that you know he, he plays for the steelers now i cannot wait to see how he does in the nfl because i think he's just a complete and total matchup problem maybe even more so in the NFL than in college. But that aside, the the fact that Georgia has four tight ends and everybody seems extremely excited about all four of them, kind of in different ways, really kind of leads to where I think we're going to be offensively this year, and that's the, the dynamic offense we saw last year where, no, Bowers is not going to win the Heisman. You know, he he might win the, you know, the tight end award. I think that's the Mackey award. He he might win that at the end of the year just because everybody for really at least the last two years um, ha- has acknowledged just how amazing he is. But these guys aren't going to put up individual numbers. You know, we talked about Ra Ra Thomas and Dominic Lovett. I would not be surprised if Lovett specifically has less yards and less catches with Georgia this year, but makes a bigger impact. Uh, but just because of the fact that the depth that George, of players that Georgia has on offense, it's really going to lead to a lot of guys getting a lot of different snaps. But hopefully Carson Beck will do what uh, Stetson Bennett was so good at last year, which is you don't start pre-snap deciding I'm going to throw it to Lad McConkey. Pre-snap, you go through your progressions and you find an open man and because of the talent you have at those skill positions, somebody's going to be open. So that's the hope. And the fact that these two tight ends could could factor in this year, I think, given the depth that Georgia already has at tight end, speaks a lot to maybe their top end potential. And even if we don't see a lot out of these guys during the season, just know as we move forward, the tight end room, even with law, the loss of Brock Bowers after this season, 
the tight end room is going to continue being a very strong piece of this team. Um, all right, going to just kick off some names here just to keep an ear out for uh, at the outside and inside linebacker position. We got Damon Wilson Jr. and Rylan Wilson. That's a couple of guys to keep a name on. Also, Sam Mpemba. Now, Mpemba is spelled M, comma, P-E-M-B-A. So kind of a different last name. Sam Mpemba, young guy, true freshman, obviously, but he is going to be special. He is a he is super fast. He's a apparently really good at getting after the quarterback. So a couple guys to uh to keep an eye on there. Uh a wide receiver, Zed Haynes, that you know, I honestly had never heard of before. And I, you know, I, I watch on signing day. I see the names that come across, but I never heard of this guy before. But apparently he has really turned some heads during sermon workouts. Um, and so that's just a name to keep an eye on. AJ Harris, a cornerback. Georgia's not necessarily thin at corner, but with the loss of Keely Ringo after last year, um, they've got some questions at corner. So there's like an open opportunity there at corner. And then Jordan Hall is the last name I'm going to give you. Jordan Hall is a true freshman uh, defensive lineman. And if it, you know, we're talking about all the additions, we have to acknowledge a couple of the subtractions through the transfer portal. The two that, that really stick out and the two that are going to matter this year. One of them is on the defensive line, Bear Alexander. Uh, is playing for USC now. And if you have any questions about why somebody would leave Georgia winning a national championship and head out to USC, just go on Instagram and uh, or even just Google if you don't have Instagram. Just go look for Bear Alexander Apartment. And the answer is USC hooked Bear Alexander up with NIL opportunities, an apartment, this beautiful, like, I mean, I say apartment, condo, essentially, um, on some very high floor of some very tall building in Los Angeles. Uh, so Barry Alexander, he took the bag. And uh, I, you know, some people might want to criticize him for that, but I, I don't know. I mean, nothing's guaranteed. So maybe get it while you can get it. The other person that Georgia lost um, was um, A.D. Mitchell. And A.D. left because he has a daughter, um, and she lives in Texas, and so he transferred to Texas. I'm sure there was some NIL consideration there as well, but uh, I don't think you can criticize a man too much for moving closer to his child. So uh, those were the two big losses. So we talked about the additions at wide receiver that Georgia's make to try to overcome the loss of uh, A.D. Mitchell. But I think Jordan Hall, as the season progresses, apparently could be a guy, much like Bear Alexander himself did last year, who kind of made more of an impact in the second half of the season than he did the first. So that's where we'll leave it. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and come back, and we're going to talk Pac-12 preview. The irony of the Pac-12 this year is that This has to be the most intriguing season the Pac-12 has had, I mean, no kidding, in the last 15 years. I mean, since the heyday of USC back in the early to uh, mid-2000s, really. So, I mean, even more than 15 years. The the, the Pac-10, the Pac-12, whatever iteration that you want to kind of refer back to, West Coast football, outside of a couple blips of Oregon being relevant— West Coast football has just not mattered nationally when it comes to the playoff. Now, obviously, you know, it it matters. It matters to those fans. It matters to those schools. But in the grand scheme of college football as a whole, the Pac-12 has completely receded um, in its importance over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, especially with the struggles that we've seen out of USC for the last few years. But obviously, they wanted to make a huge impact at USC, so they went out and they dropped all the money to bring Lincoln Riley in before last season. They had the Heisman Trophy winner last season, and both of those dudes are back, and there's a lot of dudes back, uh, especially at the quarterback position in the Pac-12. So um, it's it's so ironic that while we're talking now about the preview of this season and how exciting and interesting and, and I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately saying this, I think the Pac-12 along with the Big 12 are probably the two most interesting conferences in all of college football this year because there's really strong teams, but there's also small gaps between the top and the middle 
of these conferences. And so that could lead to a lot of very good games, a lot of very interesting dynamics, might not necessarily lead to playoff berths, but it's going to be interesting to watch it all unfold. Um, and unfortunately, it may all be unfolding as as things have progressed over the last couple of days. It may be unfolding with the backdrop of this conference might not exist this time next year. And that's not hyperbole at this point. It's probably better chance than not there will be no Pac-12 in 2024. So let's get into it a little bit. As I did with the ACC preview, I want to acknowledge some have and have nots and uh, not spend a whole lot of time on the have nots. But Arizona and Arizona State are on the top of my list for a have not. So if you listen to the Thursday pod, you understand the irony that those two schools could have set the dominoes in, in, in place for the conference not even existing. And yet they're not really two interesting programs when it comes to how this season's going to go. Also, Cal, Stanford, Washington State, there's just teams that are not very interesting, not very good, not going to really factor into things for the Pac-12. Uh, there's two have-nots in the Pac-12 that are not going to factor, in my opinion, into the, the conference race this year, but are interesting. Uh, UCLA, Chip Kelly's there. They they have some talent. They, they There was in, in on some guys that Georgia ended up getting, uh, especially from a running back standpoint. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, at one point, Roger Robinson that we were talking about a few minutes ago, he was committed um, to UCLA. So it'll be interesting to see what Chip Kelly and that offense can do. And I think Chip Kelly just in general um, from his time at Oregon – even though he wasn't good with the Eagles in the NFL, he was interesting. Uh, so I, I think it's always interesting. But maybe the most interesting bad team in America this year, uh, not maybe, it, absolutely the most interesting bad team in America is going to be Colorado. Future Big 12 member, current Pac-12 member, uh, and Deion Sanders' employer, Colorado. What Colorado did in this offseason could be described as both despicable, innovative, um, repulsive, disgusting, gutsy, I, I just d- depending on how you want to look at it, they have had roster turnover of over 70%. Dion walked in as the coach before seeing any of the guys on the team play in person or practice or meeting them. He had a team meeting where he announced that his son, who is a quarterback, was going to be the starting quarterback. <laughs> Uh, ran off all the other quarterbacks, obviously, that were already there. Now, they weren't any good, but still. Um, uh, and immediately started changing the culture at Colorado in a way that led to a complete mass exodus. So whether he directly let people know, hey, you don't have a spot here, you need to go find somewhere else to be, which is what a lot of the reports have been, or if he just kind of set a tone and some guys were like, yeah, this ain't what I signed up for. I'm out. Uh, the fact that 70% of this roster, somewhere close to um, 80 players are that were on the roster last year, not, I mean, obviously 85 scholarships. So not all the scholarship guys, but the people that dressed out for Colorado last year, around 80 of the 110, 15 ish that would have dressed out for home games 80 of those dudes are not on this roster anymore. Now, he he has some players. Jaden Hunter followed him from Jackson State, um, who was the number one player in the country a couple of years ago. He's apparently going to play both ways. That makes sense. Colorado needs people that can play one way. So if you got somebody that could possibly play two ways, you might as well let him. Cornerback, wide receiver. Like I said, Shabir Sanders. It's going to be interesting. He was good at Jackson State. He was named starter by his daddy before the season even started, before fall or uh, spring practice even started. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he does against a uh, higher level of talent in the Pac-12. But Colorado's interesting. Colorado's going to be interesting all year. They open the season against TCU in a game that they're going to lose big time. But even in losses, Dion, his personality, his effect on that program, what he can do with a little bit more talent at a Power 5 school, um, it's just going to be one of the more compelling things to kind of keep an eye on throughout this season. And there's no other team that's going to miss a bowl game that's going to get talked about more, going to get watched more and going to get like thought about more than Colorado. But Colorado's going to suck this year. I mean really really suck. They may sneak up on somebody in the Pac-12, but they could go and win 
somewhere between two and four games this year and not necessarily underachieve and yet be one of the most interesting teams in the nation because of their coach and because of the dynamics of how he handled things coming into that job. So, uh, man, I, I actually talked a little bit more about Colorado than I thought I would. So definitely a have-not, probably one of the, the, the have-notest that you could ever have, <laughs> but uh, definitely interesting. So of the haves, I've got five teams that we need to talk about. Um, we're going to start with Oregon State. The Beavers won 10 games last year beat Oregon in the Civil War. They destroyed Florida. Go go Beavers. They destroyed Florida in the Las Vegas Bowl 30 to 3 if I'm remembering right. Then they went out and they got DJU from uh Clemson in the transfer portal and Oregon State if if you remember anything about them last year, they ran all over Oregon in that Civil War game. Um and apparently the, the reports out of Oregon State are that maybe DJU is not going to be the starting quarterback. I mean, they definitely went out and got him from Clemson. I mean, the presumption was that he was going to come in and be their quarterback. He did some interviews over the summer where he was talking about the system that they ran, just kind of was more his style. He was a West Coast guy coming to Clemson anyway. Maybe he feels a little bit more at home, yada, yada, yada. Now the reports are maybe he's not going to win that job. So we'll see how that progresses, but Oregon State – they were so good at running the ball last year. They dominated Oregon in that Civil War at the line of scrimmage. And they had some pretty good wins last year and won 10 games for the first time in a long time after a real down period for Oregon State over the last few years. So of these five teams that I'm going to talk about, the reason that Oregon State is interesting is because I think their schedule sets up as good as it possibly could for any of these Pac-12 teams that have a chance to make an impact this year. So they'll host Utah in week five. It's a weird Friday night game, but they're playing at home on a Friday night. And if you know your history, Friday night games in the Pac-12, the Big 12, you know, anybody that plays on Friday night, weird things happen, and usually it doesn't go good for road favorites in those games. Utah, presumably at that point, will be the favorite uh, in in that game. And going on the road on a Friday night is kind of weird. Um And then they finish the season by hosting Washington and going on the road at Oregon. So they have to play Utah, they have to play Washington, they have to play Oregon, but those games are spread out. So I think there's an opportunity for Oregon State to get through that schedule with maybe one, maybe two losses, and that may be good enough to get them in the Pac-12 championship game. And if you're in that game, as Utah found out last year, you're just one injury or one good game away from playing in the Rose Bowl. So uh, I think the Rose Bowl is actually a playoff game this year, but you'll get a New Year's Six game out of it either way. So um, I like Oregon State this year. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. The next team we're going to talk about, Washington. Last year, strange, strange season for the Huskies. One of the indelible memories I have of last year is an early season game where Washington was playing Michigan State, and Washington's defensive line looked like they were the greatest defensive line in the history of all football. Not just college football, all football that has ever played. They were insane. That game was played, I think it was played in Seattle, um, but the crowd was going crazy and their defense just looked absolutely unstoppable. They mauled Michigan State that day, uh, but then they turned around and lost two straight games to Arizona State and UCLA by combined 15 points. So as good as the defense looked coming off a big win over a ranked Michigan State team at that time, um, then they lost inexplicably to Arizona State. And UCLA was solid last year, but to turn around and lose back-to-back games after that performance was shocking. Then they ran the table. They beat Oregon State at home. They went on the road. They upset Oregon. uh, And they beat Texas in the Alamo Bowl and ended up 11-2 and and ranked in the top 10 of the AP poll. So when you kind of look back at it from last year's perspective, Washington is one game, okay? Like I said, UCLA wasn't terrible last year, so let's pick Arizona State. If Washington beat Arizona State last year, they would have been in the Pac-12 championship game playing Caleb Williams and USC. If they win that game, Washington is maybe in the playoff? I I mean, I don't know. Would they have taken Washington over Ohio State at that point after we see the way Ohio State played Georgia? Obviously, you know Ohio State was better than Washington, but that's how close Washington was last year from having a very, very special season. Um, 
The good news is Michael Penix Jr. back this year. The bad news is, in my opinion, their schedule is the worst of any of the contenders that we're going to talk about. They open with Boise State. Then they go on the road. They have to return that Michigan State uh, game that was in Seattle last year. Well, now they've got to go play Michigan State in week three. They host Oregon in mid-October, and their November schedule, the four games that they'll play in November, at USC, home for Utah, at Oregon State, and then versus Washington State in the Apple Cup. I think Washington, I loved, I watched them play maybe twice last year. I watched that Oregon game um, that was very close and very great game, and I, I watched the Michigan State game. So I can't pretend I watched them every single week. I really like them. I really like Michael Penix Jr. going all the way back when he was in, with Indiana and, and upsetting Ohio State, I think Ohio State, maybe it was Penn State, earlier in the uh, COVID season. But this schedule is brutal, and I, I don't see a way that they can get in with only two losses. And I think if you lose three, I, I think that's going to knock you out of the Pac-12. So um, I like Washington. If they can manage the schedule, then I wouldn't be shocked to see them in the Pac-12 championship game. But it, to me, it just seems like a, 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 big, a big ask. We're going to move now to Oregon. Dan Lanning's first year <laughs> could not have been more odd. Obviously, they opened the season getting absolutely destroyed, humiliated, embarrassed, whatever word you want to put on it, by Georgia in Atlanta. Then they won eight games in a row. (laughs) And if you remember back to early November of last year, there was a conversation of, okay, Georgia's sitting there after they beat Tennessee. Georgia's sitting in there as the number one seed in the projected playoff, right? And Oregon was up there five, six. They're, you know, okay, if things progress over the next few weeks, if they run the table and win the Pac-12 and they're sitting there at 12 and one as Pac-12 champions, do you really put Oregon in as the four seed and have a rematch? There was talk of that in November last year, but then that's when it all fell apart for Oregon. Um, I think they got as they were as high as ranked sixth, and that's when they lost to Washington uh, at home. Then the very next week, They went and beat Utah. Then they lost on the road at the last game of the season to Oregon State in a game that Dan Lanning pretended like he had never coached football at all, not just college football. And when I say coached, I mean like never played, never seen a game played or coached. He went forward on fourth down in stupid situations throughout that game, made some very awful calls. Bo Nix couldn't get anything going in the second half in particular, and Lanning just keep kept putting his offense, or I guess really his defense, in bad situations by letting his offense stay out there, and it just did not work. Um, So they end up losing to Georgia, one loss. They lost to Washington. They lost to Oregon State. That kept them out of the Pac-12 championship game. Uh, Then they went out and beat UNC in the Holiday Bowl for the weirdest 10-3, and at least right now, that I'm aware of. Um, And then... I had to kind of stop myself because I think about it and I think about first year head coaches and just a couple popping into my mind. I think Saban went seven and five in his first season. Uh, I know that Kirby went eight and five after the bowl game in his first season. So 10 and three in your first season at any school, especially a power five school, they beat the eventual Pac-12 champion Utah. 10 and three for a first year coach is amazing. I mean, really. Now, the way that 10-3 and happened is so odd and weird because they got absolutely destroyed by Georgia, and then they bookended it by losing their rivalry game in a way that, you know, the score wasn't an absolute blowout, but it was embarrassing the way they played against Oregon State to finish the season. So it's just just kind of weird, and it's kind of weird to know, like, okay, what does that mean? What does that put them in this year? Bo Nix is back. I think it's good. But if you followed Bo Nix's career, you cannot definitively say if it's good or bad because there's good Bo, which is what we saw most of the season last year. But then there's bad Bo. Um, and if bad Bo is around, then it's not good. And if good Bo's around, then it's good. So I hope you understood that. Uh, their schedule uh, sets up in kind of a weird way. They should be 5-0 and when they go on the road to play uh, Washington in mid-October. They finish October. They have a game between, but they finish October on the road at Utah. Then they host USC two weeks later, and then they host the Beavers in the Civil War to finish the season. So while they play every other team we're talking about as contenders in the Pac-12, 
They don't play any of them back to back. They always have, you know, Arizona or Arizona State or Cal or one of the other teams kind of sandwiched in there. And because of that, it kind of makes the schedule a little bit, it's not necessarily easier because they have to play everybody, but it makes it maybe more manageable from a how you navigate the schedule sense. You don't have to play Washington and Utah on back-to-back weeks. You don't have to play USC and Oregon State back-to-back. So it'll be interesting to see how they navigate the schedule. While they do have to play all the other contenders, uh, can they manage it a little bit better because they it kind of broke for them in that way. Now, I'm going to reserve Utah as the, the last team we're going to talk about uh, out of respect for the fact that they are the two-time defending Pac-12 champions. So right now we're going to talk about USC. They have the Heisman winner from last year. He's back. They were... Very close in that Pac-12 championship game. And, you know, everybody talks about Caleb Williams' injury. I was watching that game. Um, Maybe I'm misremembering it. Or maybe everybody is just kind of making up a narrative. Caleb Williams, they they he was okay before he got injured. But Utah, it wasn't like they were blowing Utah out. Utah was very much in the game. I think Utah was leading. And the assumption was just that, oh, Caleb Williams is a, you know, a great player is going to figure out a way to win this game. Well, he got injured. They ended up not winning the game. Utah ended up kind of pulling away there at the end. But a win in that Pac-12 championship game would have, in my opinion, probably put USC in the playoff. Um, They've got Lincoln Riley back in his second year, which is usually when you see the bump. But they were able to bring so many guys in last year because of Lincoln Riley uh, and because Caleb Williams came with them from Oklahoma that Honestly, last year was a great season for USC. So there's a lot of positive stuff going on. And there was really only one problem last year. And that's that uh, they don't seem to match up with Utah well at all. They lost to them in the regular season. They lost to them in the Pac-12 championship game. Now everybody's going to put a little asterisk beside both of those. They lost by one point, USC did, to Utah in the regular season. And Caleb Williams got hurt in the Pac-12 title game. But if you go back over the last few years... Utah is dominated USC. So, yes, USC probably has the most talent. They should be the favorite in the Pac-12. But if they can't solve the Utah problem, it may put them in a position where they could be a better team, but just styles make fights. Tell Ohio State and Michigan. You know, like the last two years, Michigan has physically dominated a better Ohio State team and beat them two straight years this last year in Columbus. So. We may be seeing a little bit of that when it comes to the Utah-USC dynamic because the physical way that Utah likes to play seems to really give USC some problems. Um, So they finished the season last year uh, by losing to to Tulane and that crazy Cotton Bowl. So you can kind of throw that out, but you shouldn't because that was awesome. (laughs) But coming into this year, USC's got one last chance to win the Pac-12. Now, maybe everybody only has one last chance to win the Pac-12, but they're going to be in the Big 10 starting in 2024. Um, the the hype train around USC is going to be huge. I've, I, I don't know when the AP and the coaches poll come out, um, but I would imagine that it's going to be a lot today. I, I or, or when it comes out, I think USC is going to be very highly ranked, very highly regarded, uh, probably in the top 10. And when you look at their schedule, they are absolutely going to roll into mid-November as an undefeated team. They play Notre Dame on October 14th. Uh, That game is already, they're at Notre Dame, so that game is already scheduled for 7.30 on NBC. That game, I would imagine game day uh, will most likely be there, but that is going to be a huge stage for Caleb Williams and USC they will most likely after that game be 7-0 and and that's when it gets real because after going at uh at Notre Dame they host Utah the very next week and then they finish the season versus Washington at Oregon and then they are home home away to, as if it really matters against UCLA um obviously the returning Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams trying to do the, uh, the thing that nobody's been able to do since Archie Griffin back, and I don't know, a million years ago, uh, and win back-to-back Heisman. 
USC is going to get a lot of benefit of the doubt this year because they've got the star quarterback, they've got the star coach, they've got LA, and and college football is desperate to have a brand like USC matter again, right? Um, so with everything going on in the Pac-12, with everything going on the last year of the 14 playoff, it's been a very long time since anybody from the Pac-12 made the playoff, right? Like you've got two SEC teams making it some years. You had two Big Ten teams making it last year. TCU's made it. USC's never made the playoff. Since it started in 2014, Oregon made it. Washington has made it. The Trojans have never been in the playoff. And it's it's been rare that the Pac-12 got a team in at all. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, if they can do it in this last year of the 14 playoff. That leaves the last team to talk about, and and again, I, I felt like I had to put them last just out of a little bit of respect for what they've done in the conference the last two years. Utah, two-time defending Pac-12 champions, um, and I was coming into this kind of making my notes thinking, man, they get, they get no respect, and they don't get any respect, and then I realized as I started kind of looking through their schedule and, and, and the last couple of years, maybe why they don't get any respect. Um, so 2022 in particular – so weird. Somehow managed to lose to an absolutely awful Florida team. If you listen to the preview show for week one last year, I guaranteed, uh, I bet all your money on the fact that Utah was going to go into the swamp and destroy Florida. Instead, they started the one-week uh, Anthony Richardson for Heisman campaign. Um, it, it it only lasted a week, but boy, was it loud while it was going. Um they lost to Florida on the road, a bad Florida team, a really, really bad Florida team to start last season. They won four straight, then they lost to UCLA. Um, then they turned around a week later and beat USC in that thriller we talked about. I think it was 32-31, but I know it was a one-point game. Then they win three more games before losing the second game of the season in conference to Oregon. Then they beat Colorado, and that clinched their spot in, in, in a tiebreaker scenario with Oregon and Washington, they were the two-loss team that got to go and play in the Pac-12 championship game where Caleb Williams got hurt and they beat USC to win the Pac-12. They got to their second consecutive Rose Bowl where they were summarily beaten by Penn State. So you could say it a couple ways. You can say they've, win, they've won back-to-back conference championships and appeared in two straight Rose Bowls. But you can also say they've lost eight games in the last two years. Both of those things are true because of the non-conference losses and the bowl game losses. So they they won the conference last year. They were they had ten wins, right, with the, with the win in the conference championship game. But their final record was ten and four. It's just odd, and and it kind of like I said to start, it kind of leads you to understand why maybe Utah doesn't get the respect. That, that they should as a team that's gone out there in two years in a row and won a Power 5 conference. Well, yes, but then they've also managed to lose games that they probably had no business losing. Not the bowl games. Yeah, bowl games you can't count, but that loss to Florida last year, inexplicable. So this year, um, they, they, they host Florida. Now, l- let's take a second here. They are hosting Florida on August 31st. That's this month. That's in a few weeks. Um, yes, we are this close, guys. Uh, they they open the season with a primetime game. They're hosting Florida on a Thursday night to kick the season off. Uh, what a ratchet program Florida is that they have to play on a Thursday night to kick off their season. On the road, no less. Um, and then they go on the road at Baylor. And, and that's not going to be an easy game. And they've struggled. We talked about losing to Florida. So hosting Florida one week, they've got a long week to get ready to Baylor, but then they got to go on the road to Baylor. Um, here's their schedule from September 29th, the last Saturday in September through the second week of November. At Oregon State versus Cal. At USC versus Oregon versus Arizona State and at Washington. Now, if we are going to say that a three-loss team is going to win the Pac-12, I put all my money on Utah, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think Utah is going to take a pretty significant step back this year. When you factor in that they are also being talked about this Big 12 move and there's just a lot that's going to be going on, that schedule, I think they're going to lose to Baylor. 
for the love of God, I hope they beat Florida. I mean, come on. Florida's not going to be much better this year than they were last year, and they lost Anthony Richardson. I think they should win that opening game, but after that, I would not be shocked to see them lose to all the other teams that I've talked about here in the season with four or five losses and just kind of have to reset a little bit. Cam Rising is back their quarterback from last year. He's very good, and he can win them some games. He's also coming off an injury in the spring, and it's not 100% clear if he's going to be full go from the start of the season. So, I, you know, no, no disrespect. Well, I guess it is disrespect to Utah, but I don't think they can do it again. Um, my prediction for the Pac-12 is is chaos. That that really is the the, the prediction. It's going to be so much more entertaining than it's been this year. Uh, this year it'll be more entertaining than it's been in so long. Um, I also, I think there's only one team that can make the playoff here, honestly, from a talent standpoint, from a notoriety standpoint, if they're going to make a playoff this year and what may end up being the last year of the Pac-12, definitely the last year of the 14 playoff, um, it's it's got to be USC. If they can navigate this schedule with only one loss um, and win the Pac-12 championship game, I think USC is a 12-1 and Pac-12 champion has a chance. I mean, any of these teams, let's, let me be clear, any team that comes out of this conference and is is twelve and one or thirteen and zero, obviously, uh, as a, as a conference champion, is going to make it. I just don't see how Oregon, Washington, Oregon State, or Utah could actually get to a one loss season. I, I I really don't. USC, their their schedule is tough but manageable. They have that marquee game with Notre Dame. They've got the Heisman Trophy winner. I personally don't think they do it. I think they're going to drop two games. I do think they'll win the conference. I do think that it'll be a very good season. I just don't think that Lincoln Riley has the depth in that roster yet. Top-end talent, very similar in my mind to LSU. We'll talk about them in a few weeks. But the top-end talent might be you know, top five, top six in the country. But when you get to that second team, when you get to that third team, there's a reason they paid Bear Alexander so much money to come play for USC. The lines of scrimmage are are, are getting there, but they're not quite there. So I think when you play those physical teams like Oregon, like like Oregon's trying to be under Dan Lanning, like Oregon State, like Washington with that defensive line, and like Utah with the way they like to play, it just seems that they're asking too much to get through the entire thing unscathed. So – my pick here is that U- that USC wins the conference. I think they beat Oregon State because of Oregon State's schedule. I think they beat Oregon State in the Pac-12 championship game. I think you have another situation last year, like you had last year, where you got a couple teams sitting there that all beat each other with two losses in the conference, and Oregon State is my pick to win the tiebreaker. I don't even know how that would work, but that's what I'm picking. Um, so Oregon State to make the title game, but to lose to USC, USC – is the Pac-12 champion. Thank you so much for listening to Saturday in Athens. We will be back next Saturday. We may be back before that, depending on what happens with this crazy realignment situation. But again, I hope you had a wonderful time listening to the podcast this week. I know I had a good time recording it. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week when it's Saturday in Athens.